0: Hello and welcome to this week's Strange Pathways. I am your host, Scott Mort. I hope you're having just a wonderful, wonderful week. Uh, we've got some really, really interesting tales for you today. And please bear with me, I'm not feeling the best. So, my, my wife and I, we took a, a lovely drive around the Quimahoning Dam, close to Johnstown where I live, Johnstown, Pennsylvania, even has its own ghost. called the Lantern Man. Whether or not it's actually there, I'm still up in the air about. But, on our way there, my wife, who is a certified chocoholic, uh, she ends up getting a slice of chocolate cake at this little deli. She eats part of it, and we come home and she says, "Honey, do you want the rest of this? Yeah, I'm not one to let food go to waste, so I do have the rest of the most chocolate chocolate cake I have ever eaten in my life. It is strong, strong, strong chocolate. The icing is chocolate, the cake is chocolate." It even tasted like they maybe mixed chocolate chips in with the batter. It was so chocolate, it was unpleasant. A little something about me. I get migraines. I get migraines very easily, and one of my triggers you guessed it, chocolate. I thought that, you know, usually, usually I can go. You know, I'll have, I can have a chocolate candy bar, just one, and I'm fine. And there wasn't very much of this cake left. This was like maybe a third of a slice of cake. And I thought, well, I'll be fine. Well, I was not. I am currently fighting a migraine. But I have downed my migraine pills. That's what you hear right there. And I have chased it with some Diet Mountain Dew. The caffeine does tend to kick a migraine out. And I have taken all of my notes. Thankfully, I don't write my notes down. I I, I save them in a Word file. And I've taken all my notes and I've blown them up real big. So, God willing, God willing, we'll get through this. I have too much fun every week doing this not to do this. Our first tale is going to take us all the way back to the spring of 1977. A little city in Spain called Benefar. This this farm in Benefar has just been purchased by the brother-in-law of one Juan Soyer. Juan is hoping to help his brother out. He's going to do some plumbing maybe a little farming and once these chores are completed both men are going to get in their cars and drive away. Juan, however, he, he, can't, he can't quite get his car to work. He's having trouble with the ignition. And then he makes a wrong turn down this road. And it is just, it is a country road, a dirt road. This is going to lead him to an open field and the road's just going to come right to an end. There's this tool shed. There's these farming tools. And it's at that moment he gets to that tool shed. And his car, which has been sputtering and, and kind of kind of coughing its way, he's limping. He's limping in his car. It dies. Juan is struggling. To get his car started. I think we all know the feeling. Where you're turning the key. The engine's cranking over. You're, you're pressing the gas. You're hoping just something clicks in right. And then all of a sudden. This entity appears. It's got no neck. And it has a big round head. Connected right to the body. Its head is enormous, and it's got a crest that kind of resembles a fin. Now, this fin also has something like a corkscrew that's about halfway down. The body is covered in large scales, about three centimeters in diameter. It's These scales, they're they're green. They're darker than the rest of the skin. Then, to one surprise, a second... And then a third figure appears. They, they all look kind of the same. This third figure that appears, it walks in the middle. And it's at that point that all three of these entities, they turn and look directly at Juan. They walk like regular people. Juan's able to see their eyes. That's that's how close Juan is to these things. They look like horses' eyes. They're they're black and white, round, bulging, and just filled with anger. I work with horses. Me personally, Scott, I work with horses, and I can tell you that they are essentially cars made out of meat and hate. I horses are just the angriest creatures in the world, at least to me. Maybe it's, maybe it's a problem with me. But these things, these things are angry. Now, Juan also says that there's a lot of distance between these eyes. And he's noticing they have no noses, they have very small mouths. And these things are carrying something in their hands, but Juan quite can't make it out. In Juan's own words, he says he feels invaded by a sense of terror. It was a hellish nightmare. And this entire time that he's looking at them, he, he continues to try to get the, the key in the ignition and start it. He, he's just turning that car over, turning the car over. And he puts the car in reverse, doesn't even look behind him. Just gets out of there the best that he can now juan he's had some experiences before juan says he he tends to revisit the places he has experiences but he's never going back here let's let's talk about one of juan's previous experiences This is, we're going, we're going back to 1966, September, uh, the banks of the Marginal River. Now, Juan decides he's going to take his girlfriend on a picnic and at around 2 PM, Juan kind of goes off to a spring to bring back water. And as he's going off, something catches his eye. He sees, he sees this metallic structure, and at first, in his mind, he's thinking this is a motorcycle sidecar. But then, as he gets closer, he realizes that this thing is like a long white cylinder that's about 16 centimeters over the ground. It's hovering. He, he said it kind of looks like a small submarine, he thinks it's about 5 meters. That's around 15 feet with 120 centimeters. And it's got portholes. And if you look through these portholes, you could see these brown seats inside. He's he's about 25-30 feet away from this object at this time. And then he sees the two humanoids. They're dressed in white and they're wearing helmets. These these helmets are are kind of similar to motorcycle helmets. They're dressed in these segmented outfits that made them look like the Michelin man. Now, they they're not like super puffy like the Michelin man. These these segments are thinner, but they looked very much like the Michelin man. He can't make out their faces clearly. But he had he had the feeling that they were nordic and they'd gotten suntanned. You know, you can kind of like see like like the side of their face or what have you. Now Juan Solar he's he, he feels the he feels that fight or flight kick in and everything in his brain is telling him flight he he wants to get away he wants to go back to his girlfriend but instead he runs towards the entities he charges between both figures he brushes up against one of them the the owner of the property containing the spring though it's not juan's property he's just visiting it he's he's there he he sees the owner juan sees this owner he's he's shouting at him this owner shouts at these two humanoids and then these two Creatures, entities, aliens. They get on board their craft. Once these creatures are on board, they actually kind of bump into them with the sharp end of their vehicle. One also feels something in his head. He He turns around and says, Just go, go. I'm not going to do anything to you. This vehicle, it's lifting up. It gets to about the height of Juan's head. And he is in excruciating pain. Juan says he, he feels like his hair is on fire. And the pain spreads down to his, from his arms to his legs. He, he turns around, looks. He sees that the portholes are closed. But he can still see the two humanoids in their seats in the front of the craft. He, he says the, the pain was really similar to an electric shock. He'd, he had worked in a factory and gotten a bad electric shock. And he said it felt very similar. Juan goes for, for work Monday morning. He was supposed to show up at 5 a.m. But instead he shows up at 9 because he's not feeling well. He he goes to the doctor in the afternoon. And even though the doctor doesn't doesn't go, you can't go back to work that day. The next day he goes again. And Juan misses 15 days worth of work. He tells this story to his friends, his family, his workmates. No one believes him. No one believes him at all. In fact, he's made fun of. The people at the factory where he works starts giving him the nickname Gregerin you know, after, the, after the Soviet astronaut. He's, he, he tries to, to speak to the landowner who had yelled at the at the entities. He he goes to the home and the the old the old man's daughter, the, the owner of the property, slaps him. Slaps him right then and there. In in nineteen ninety-four, the daughter's husband. After after the man had died, the daughter's husband agreed to speak to Juan, but he had nothing new to say. He uh, he tried to discuss this with a parish priest. Slap in the face. Disgusting, absolutely disgusting. Finally, Juan gets to speak. To the community's jack of all trades, Jose Remy. Jose tells him, "Yeah, I kind of had something similar happen. He was about a mile outside of the town. Whenever he he saw this white vehicle with the two pilots, Jose says he was so frightened that he covered his eyes. He was he he was." He was, had some mules. And he said, I just covered my eyes for a while. And I let the mules take my cart into town. It, it breaks my heart that Jose Solar was, was unable to talk to very many people. He, he was met with ridicule. By his workmates. He was met by violence. By his, uh, by his own parish leader. That's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. It, it's that stigma that I talk about all the time. These events ruin lives. And until we start taking it seriously... And we absolutely should, because no matter what, if the person really saw something, then it needs to be, needs to be investigated. If the person didn't really see anything, then medical authorities have to get involved because something is wrong, be it a stroke, mental illness, no shame in that, no shame in that at all, but no matter what. This needs to be studied. And instead of making fun of people who experience these sorts of things, be it UFOs, ghosts, cryptids, what have you, some real, honest-to-God study and understanding has to go into this. Our next tale is going to take us to a small farmhouse on the Toole River near Porterville, California. This Lady, we're going to call her Tammy. She moves in. And a few days after she does, she has this this weird feeling that something's watching her and her her children. She has three children. Your children, you're concerned about them. Most of the animals on this farm seem to avoid this, this one rickety farmhouse, this little building. And then she notices that the ducks and chickens are starting to vanish. Now one night, Tammy and her son, they come back from grocery shopping. They park the car. And on her right, she just gets a flash of movement. Doesn't really think too much of it. Might have been a rabbit. Maybe even a deer. That's just this quick flash. And then she sees it again. And this time, she, she says it, it sounds like a freaky, evil-sounding chuckle. She looks, and about 150 feet away from her is this small, humanoid-looking figure. Tammy describes it as a gnome. It's about two or three feet high. It's wearing black baggy pants and a gold collared shirt. It's got a long salt and pepper beard and it's wearing a long red pointed hat, a large bulbous nose and, and deep set eyes are set above this huge grin. I, an ear-to-ear grin. And the teeth, they're ugly brown. And these teeth, now remember, she's 150 feet away, but these teeth, they're either broken off and kind of jagged, or they're they're pointed. Seeing this, Tammy is absolutely terrified. She drops the groceries, grabs her son, and runs off towards the house, and at this point, the little cackling gnome, it's chasing after them. Tammy's able to get inside the house with her son, and she's telling her, her daughters, she has two daughters, she's telling them what she saw. And she catches that movement, outside the kitchen window she kind of goes over to the window and she's able to see the red pointed hat kind of moving back and forth underneath the window then the figure disappears she gets up that bravery she goes out gets the rest of the groceries from the car This is the only time that she actually sees this gnome. But, but, she would often hear that creepy giggling, that chuckling, coming from the old rickety barn. Now, this isn't the only time that this has happened. This is what fascinates me about this case. Tammy, rightly so, I think any of us would, moves out. And in March of 2010, a new family moves in. Now the wife, her name is Charlie, she thinks that this is going to be perfect. Her her husband likes the pawn that's on the property, and... And oddly enough, he he decorates it with fairies and gnomes and toadstool yard ornaments. And he, he stalks the pond with koi. Charlie and her family starts to get that eerie feeling about the barn. And they stay away from it as much as possible. 3 a.m charlie and her husband were woke up by what they call and i quote raspy gurgly singing they look out of their bedroom window standing by the pond holding one of the garden gnomes the little ornaments is the same creature here's the way charlie describes it two to three feet tall maroon pants baggy yellow shirt Brown vest, dark waistcoat, a gray beard, reddish-brown pointed hat. She goes on to say, the worst part of this creature, eyes and teeth. When it grins, say it with me. The teeth are jagged and pointed. The eyes are small and beady. This thing whips its head around. It sees the couple looking at it. This thing, this gnome, reaches into the pond, grabs one of the fish, drops it into his mouth, and swallows it. Charlie's husband is angry. He pushes open the window and yells at this. The guts on this guy. He says, leave or I call the police. The gnome grinned, laughed, and then flipped them the bird. And then disappeared. True to the husband's word, he calls the police. They, they, they're notified that an intruder was on the property. An hour later, the police get there. They find small footprints around the pond Night after night they see this creature holding the yard ornament eating fish night after night after night it gets it gets so bad that they move the fish inside and they move the ornaments inside the gnome Goes nuts over this. 3 a.m. hits. His usual time. It looks around. Finds the yard ornaments. Fish. Gone. And it starts yelling and screaming. In this language. That no one can understand. It ran around the house. Screaming. The family kind of felt safe ish until Charlie realizes the dog door in the kitchen was unlocked. She runs down. She's able to lock it and then runs upstairs and closes the rest of the window. The last thing they hear is this loud screeching cackling sound. They hear it underneath one of the living room windows Charlie's husband goes, looks out, and sees the creature's hat underneath the window. Now, the family, rightfully so, once again, they decide to get out of the house. They even leave the town itself. Porterville is a distant memory to them. What fascinates me most about this is that you have two separate families on the same property seeing the same thing it's it is interesting because I do believe in tulpas so did perhaps a belief from the first family create this tulpa and they left it behind is this some sort of ghost That's on the property. Is it a California version of Pukwudgies? This, this is actually a fascinating case to me. This, this tale and and another that I'll get into on another episode was suggested to me by Shannon Sabato's fan 46 on on YouTube. And I want to throw a huge thank you out to them. Uh, Absolutely fascinating tale. Absolutely fascinating tale. I, my my wife and I, my wife and I are thinking about moving. And it, it's interesting that the house that I lived in before this one was extremely active. It was so act, active that I actually lost girlfriends over it. I, I had I had girlfriends that refused to spend the night at my place, but whenever i moved into my current house which is this 19 room victorian mansion in johnstown pennsylvania it everybody said everybody said this place has to be haunted you're getting this place at a steal i bought it for thirty thousand dollars 19 rooms close to five thousand square feet Everybody said, you're making a mistake. This place is haunted. One of my friends actually referred to it as the Resident Evil Mansion. Aside from about three or four things that have happened over, over a span of about six years, it's been very, very inactive. Th- there have been some some weird things that happened but whenever you have a place like Johnstown that has the history that it does you know we had a, a massive flood several times somebody has probably died in the floods for every square foot of this town we have a massive cemetery called uh, called Grandview that is mostly flood victims so whenever you come to a town like this, in, in a state that's as unusual and active as Pennsylvania is, yeah, you're going to get something once or twice or what have you. It's, I would argue that it's actually more likely that you get someplace that's haunted than not in Pennsylvania. But my wife and I are thinking about moving. Moving. We want to move to the, to some place that's warmer. Some place more in the forest. But it's, it's stories like these that give me pause. The that, that make me go be careful where you move to. Cause it's it's a far cry from every once in a while you see some glowing orbs in the darkness and maybe maybe two or three times a year you see a woman in white crying over the pond and she vanishes that's a pretty far cry from 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 a, a gnome a vicious gnome that cackles chases you and eats your pets be careful where you move Our last tale is going to take us to Russia, 1969. A little settlement called Tsul in the Kemerovo region. Now, I, I, know, I know that there's, there's a lot going on right now in history with Russia. I, I'm not going to get into the politics of it. Far be it from me. You, you shouldn't listen to anything political I have to say Anyway we're not here from this. And quite honestly, please feel free to come here to take a break from all that stuff. But according to the reports coming out of, of this area, there's a sarcophagus filled with a, a pink liquid removed by coal miners in Rajevic. Inside this sarcophagus Is an intact corpse. Of a beautiful woman. She appears to be Slavic. In appearance. And she's dressed. In a transparent. Garment. Made from. A material no one can identify. Now this marble coffin. It was buried. In a 20 meter coal seam. It's elaborately carved now the main witness is oleg kulishkin and he he heard the story from a kgb colonel that was involved in this incident in september of 1969 they said this woman she appeared to be 30 years old now, she also had this black rectangular metal object. It was 25 by 10 centimeters, placed close to her head. The entire village arrived to take a look at her. Afterwards, the KGB comes in and they declare, the, this place is contagious. We're going to quarantine this place. They take all the evidence, they grab the coffin, and they take it away by helicopter. Researchers take a look at all this stuff. The age of burial is at least 80 million years. They never figured out what the fabric was. They they make the decision. They conclude that whatever methods were used to manufacture the fabric was much, much more advanced than anything we have in the present day. They they don't even know what the pinkish crystalline liquid was. They just said that they, they could tell some of it was made by very, very old varieties of garlic. In 2007, uh, a journalist for the Russian newspaper, Sibdepo, he, he decides to verify the legends of the Tissel Princess. This journalist's name, Roman Yanchenko. Now, he finds this woman, Tatyana Pavlona Karnokova, uh, she's the wife of of a miner. He finds that he had that she had died five years previously as a result of of prolonged serious illness. So he starts to look into this, and he finds that others who worked in that same quarry died, all in a series of strange incidents and, and circumstances. The quarry was closed by 1973 and now it's covered by a dense forest. 80 million years. I, I, once, I once watched this documentary that said if humanity disappeared today, that the only thing that would be standing 50,000 years from now would be the Hoover Dam. We have, we have all these out-of-place artifacts. We have spark plugs found in geodes, the COSO artifact. We have trilobites that died out uh, 300 million years ago that seem to have been crushed. By something wearing a shoe. Let's say that, let's say that humanity is a lot older than, than we believe it to be. And I believe it is. Right now, for example, right now we have tribes in the Amazon, tribes on North Sentinel Island that are practically Stone Age. sorry my cats again we have these tribes that are practically stone age yet here we are in modern times living very high tech what's to say that 80 million years ago there there wasn't a tribe of humans but then you have others the more high tech ones ones that are more in tune with nature Ones whose technology is completely based on biodegradability. Ones that live a lot cleaner than we do. If your entire society, if your tech, with a few exceptions, such as this coffin, is all based on biodegradability, what evidence would there ever be that your society existed. A little food for thought. Thank you very kindly for joining us again this week on Strange Pathways. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do so at strangepathwaysmail at gmail.com. Come on over to our Facebook page. We'll have a few images over there dealing with this week's tales. Thank you once again for listening. Take care of yourselves and each other.